morning and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Ed Newell, I'm the Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge. If this is your first time joining us, then um, our Dialogue and Debate series addresses pressing societal and ethical issues. And we invite guest speakers for open conversations on diverse subjects that relate to our work on social cohesion. The series aims to bring our work and ethos to new audiences online, and so we're delighted that you're joining us today. Most recently, we ran a four-part mini-series on Black Lives Matter and discussed the implication of the Black Lives Matter movement for policing, education, and society more widely. If you missed this and you'd like to uh, find out more, you can find the recordings on the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website. Today, we'll be exploring the importance of ensuring people have access to digital technologies and the internet, particularly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll be drawing on our latest Cumberland Lodge report, Digital Inclusion Bridging Divides, which is now available to download from our website. We're delighted to welcome three guest panelists this morning, Robin Christofferson, Head of Digital Inclusion at AbilityNet, Shabira Papain, Head of Diversity and Inclusion and Reach, at NHSX, and writer, speaker, and strategist, Lauren Rosavi. So thank you all very much indeed for joining us. And to those who are watching this morning, to, do please get involved and submit any question you'd like to put to our guests as we go along. You can submit questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom, or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge, or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. I'm gonna begin uh, the discussion with asking questions to our panellists and um, I'm going to start with Robin. Robin, which groups in society do you think are most disadvantaged by the digital divide and are socio-economic inequalities key indicators of digital exclusion? Thanks Ed. Uh, welcome everyone or hello everyone. Um, so yes is the answer to question. There is wide variety and the report that um, has been published recently does a really good job of highlighting these different groups that are disadvantaged. I would say the two main areas are socioeconomic and geographical and there is some correlation between the two there. Um, the northeast of England, Scotland and Wales in particular um, have let's say the biggest digital divide and there are lots of reasons for that um, you know there's historical um, take up of uh, technology um, there's educational reasons there's socio-economic reasons there's physical reasons to do with infrastructure etc uh, AbilityNet which is the, the UK charity that I uh, work for is all about technology and disability so I would definitely want to highlight that the disabled community which obviously crosses all of those other um, sectors, those other groups, um, you could consider as being a, a subset of those areas, those groups um, that are particularly disadvantaged. Um, they tend to have less disposable income. Um, they have less uh, ability to access online content and functionality because of the inaccessibility of many of the digital services and products that companies offer. And I'm sure we're gonna to touch upon home working a little bit later on, but those that are in employment have been particularly impacted by 
many of the very often hasty decisions that were made by companies in putting processes and uh, uh, products in place to help transition to home working. And we can you know, touch upon those a little bit later on. But yeah, disability, which is uh, my particular area of expertise, um, is a, a, a huge challenge. You know, imagine the digital skill gap that exists among the groups that, we, that I mentioned earlier. And if you layer on top of that, the um, hurdle of trying to first get hold of the right assistive technologies to overcome your particular impairment, then to be trained on them to become proficient enough to be able to access the internet and other digital products um, and to you know be confident enough with those and have the ongoing support that you need and particularly with home working there's there's issues with um, or isolation uh, there's issues with um, that support being less than in you know a normal situation so yeah there is a huge um, variation across the UK and within certain groups and disability definitely features uh, very strongly in that. Thank you very much indeed and Shapiro we're going to ask you a question which really follows on from that about technical innovation has helped communities deal with the effects of, of COVID-19 but what's it meant for those who lack the skills the resources or indeed the confidence to embrace uh, digitally driven change? Yes, if you don't mind, I'm just going to piggyback first um, on Robin's uh, response, because I think it's really important to define some of the terms that we're using today so that we're talking about the same things. So first of all, for me, when we're talking about digital exclusion, uh, for me, I see digital exclusion as another soci social determinant of health. It's a super determinant of health. So if you think about health inequalities are the unfair um, outcomes that and avoidable outcomes that some groups in society and we've got protected characteristics like disability, gender, ethnicity, age, sexuality, uh, maternity is a protected characteristic. So if you're thinking about health inequalities are avoidable and unfair disadvantages that mean some groups in society have poorer outcomes in health than other groups. So if we think about health inequalities in that way, then we look at what perpetuates health inequalities so that you can think about how to tackle them. So things like education, employment, uh, social connections, Robin just touched on that in terms of isolation, um, but poverty, racism, but digital exclusion is another super determinant of health. So I just want to just frame that so you understand the lens in which um, I'm coming at it. So to first just finish off, I just want to respond a little bit to Robin's response um, because it talked about what groups in society are most disadvantaged because that's then the group that I'll be talking about in my question and, and the socioeconomic factors perpetuate inequality. Absolutely, poverty is a key indicator here uh, that we need to pay attention to. But as Robin uh, alluded to, so is intersectionality. So, you know, people aren't silos. They're not just, you know, living with a disability. They might also be living with a disability and experiencing extreme poverty and isolation, social isolation, exclusion from education, exclusion from employment. They might be a person of colour. They might be a woman. There's all sorts of intersectionalities. And depending on our intersectionality, depending where we are in the world, depending on all sorts of things, it determines whether we have access um, to particular services, digital or non-digital, or whether there are more barriers that we experience. And there's lots, us understanding that will help us to think about the complexity of the issue and start to address 
and find the quick wins and then push for investment in the longer term um, infrastructures that we're going to need that actually the report articulated so beautifully. Um, and I hope that we get to pay attention to that. So yes, there was a lot of technology and it worked at rapid rate during COVID. Never have we seen such rapid uptake. If you think about the NHS has been trying to support GP practices since 2008 to uptake um, digital innovation to start to digitize primary care. Um, and, uh, and then through COVID, suddenly we've got 80% of practices in the country doing you know, Zoom calls with patients. And there's some benefits and there are some real difficulties that have emerged, again, that map out onto health inequalities. So none of the data we're seeing is new. They're all corroborating what we've known since before even the Marmot Review in 2010. And what they show is if you're living with a disability, if you're um, if you're uh, of black and minority ethnic community, if you're in living in areas of deprivation, which means there's poverty, there's housing issues, there's employment issues, there's education issues, then you're more likely to be left behind. Um, I have particular solutions of how you address that. The report started to address some of that. Some of it's to do with skills and some training that we need to do. Uh, but for me, it's about developing good tech. If tech is developed with, and it's about co-design, if you develop um, the technology that you're and at rate with the communities who are most at risk of being left behind with those underrepresented groups, then you're more likely to be able to take people with you on a journey. And I think that has to be an emphasis of anything that we do from now and going forward. I mean, it should always be what we do. We should always be trying to co-design and take people with us and invest in those groups that we know are more likely to get left behind. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I think we'll probably tease out some of those things that you just raised as we as we go along uh, this morning. And um, to, to Lauren, a question here. Um, beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, do you foresee an increase in the number of people uh, who will be working from home? And if you say the answer is yes, then the supplementary is what might be the consequences of this for those who are less well equipped for home working? Absolutely. So I think definitely uh, we've seen a huge change uh, in the workplace. Uh, we will see work from home uh, as the kind of status quo and the norm for huge sections of society going forward. Um, I think there's a really important distinction to make here between um, sort of workers in the knowledge economy uh, sort of former office workers, if you like, uh, and then a lot of frontline workers and, and very sort of physical world offline workers, uh, because the situation I think is is very different for both groups. But in terms from in terms of work from home, we've really seen companies uh, no longer able to brand uh, the idea of remote work as a perk. Now it's uh, I think going to. Uh, sort of just be part of any kind of job role and an expectation between employee and employer. And that has a, a huge positive impact uh, in terms of equality, in terms of sort of widening participation uh, in labor markets. So I think we have a lot to be optimistic about there, but I think there is a huge divide uh, between these different groups of workers. Uh, and a lot of the debate at the moment sort of dismisses uh, taxi drivers, people working in supermarkets, uh, the people who really physically have to go to work. Um, and I think it's really important we're actually uh, discussing those two groups and, and different ways of, of kind of dealing with each. Um, I think as well that 
you know, we talk a lot about work from home uh, and that's certainly a big part of, of what's going to happen going forward. But I think we're also going to see more of a work from anywhere. So we're going to see a lot of people uh, think differently about where they locate themselves and how they actually work. So we could well see people uh, spend several months of the year in a totally different location, perhaps to be closer to family. And this is something that remote work really facilitates. Um, however, this has the potential to create new levels of inequality uh, based on the people who, who do and don't do that, uh, particularly thinking about people with disabilities, people with caring responsibilities for family and such. Uh, actually, their options are much more limited compared with uh, people who, I suppose, can embrace a new freedom that remote work gives them. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's really interesting as well. So I'm, I'm sure we're going to, to, uh, to uh, pick up on that. Um, and I'm just going to go back to Shapira. An, uh, an extra question for you, uh, and then we'll, we'll move out more broadly. But the government is working towards increasing digital access and training in the short term. Can we expect this, to, uh, this support to continue in the longer term? Um, from everything that I've seen and lots of recent policy documents and guidance that's coming our way into NHSX, I could say yes. I know NHSX, um, we're investing a lot in ensuring uh, we're paying attention to digital inclusion um, and we're um, in the process of training up. Uh, there's these 750,000 NHS responders that volunteered um, and we're developing um, training programs so that we can train the responders, train clinical frontline staff who are local people themselves and then looking at how we can train uh, digital champions that are local people and develop those skills but developing really uh, straightforward, easy-to-use technologies are really important parts of it. I know DCMS, the Department of Media, Culture and Sport, have been doing a lot of work in this in this space as well. So I know many different departments are doing. I think the challenge is going to be about joining up. Um, and what I think is it's not just a government responsibility. Um, I think public agencies can do so much, but actually, you know, a lot of voluntary sector organisation and community organisations who know their people, who are speaking to the people that we wish that we were speaking to um, are doing some really great innovative things to train up and gear up uh, their team and we could be learning from those so I think we need to join up um, and I'm really keen and I hope and my question back to people I'm just going to put it in here now so they can think about it if you don't mind is how are your organizations how are you involving underrepresented voices in your organizations to reduce the digital divide tackle that divide. I'm interested in knowing about that because I, I want to create a repository. I was on another webinar early this week and I've asked the same question and I was another one a month ago and I'm going to pull it together and I want us to be able to share with one another so that we can learn and piggyback from each other's experience and good practice. Great. Well, let's hope plenty of uh, responses to that I question so. for you. And um, actually we're going to, to, to just do a quick question for those who are uh, joining us now. We have, one of the things we do on these webinars from time to time is have a poll. So we're going to have a quick poll now just to, to get a sense of something. So the poll is going to pop up on your screen now. Question we're asking is, have your digital skills advanced as a result of COVID-19? So uh, yes or no? It says panellists can't vote. Oh, no. <laughs> I feel uh, bereft. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's see what's happening. Oh, wow. So here we go. So 83% say uh, yes, 17% say no. So presumably 17% were highly competent with Zoom before COVID struck. So uh, I guess, well, that's, that's a really interesting that it, it really has shown how uh, we've got digital over the last, uh, last few months. Can I jump in on it with a comment on the question you asked Lauren and her response? Yeah, please do. So um, I think that there's going to be a very, very long tail when it comes to home working or working anywhere. Um, because not only for people who, who find, like myself, I'm, I'm a blind uh, screen reader user and the... Uh, I've worked from home for some time because our office, they're a noisy bunch. They really are a noisy bunch. And when you're relying on speech output, then it's really hard when there's a lot of noise going on in the office. And I could use noise cancelling headphones, I suppose, but then I'd just be in my own world. And when you can't see the office around you, then that's a very isolating experience. So I actually transitioned to home working four or five years ago now. And so, you know, I was familiar with Zoom before uh, COVID-19 struck. And I don't feel isolated myself. Um, it's quite a busy household and hopefully you won't experience that during this webinar. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, for me, that hasn't necessarily been an issue, but I've certainly uh, experienced and uh, appreciative of the efficiencies of home working, of remote working. Um, for whatever reason, and again, as a blind person, you know, I don't see the benefit myself of having to travel from the Midlands into London for a face-to-face -face meeting, which held no additional kind of components that required a face-to-face, -face, um, except that the people that I was meeting with just preferred it that way. Um, and that would be the whole day gone. And you'd only be able to get one meeting in, whereas now you can do five or six, etc. And, you know, that I think we're not going back from that. So home working or kind of remote working from wherever you are is going to be a, a thing for a long time to come or a kind of a blended approach, depending on how frontline you are versus, you know, what you can do from your laptop or wherever you are. But for the vulnerable people, like people with disabilities, people that have been... Um, you know, really challenged with, with uh, the whole coronavirus situation, I think that there is going to be a requirement for employers to accommodate their, um, even if it's just their preference going forward. I mean, as a blind person myself, if I were to travel to another place now for a meeting, um, I've got a guide dog so I can get from A to B quite okay, but, you know, in uh, stations, uh, train stations, etc. I really do need to have some assistance to get through the barrier, to get to the right train, etc. And there I'm going to be holding the elbow uh, that the government guidance has been told, you know, if you haven't got a tissue on you, then cough into that elbow. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are some distinct challenges. And I think that um, whether it's disability, whether it's mental health, whether it's just well-being, or whether it's just someone saying, look, I am so much more efficient and so much less stressed or anxious to be able to do this, you know, to, to have a blended approach or to work entirely from home, there's going to be a very, very long tail. So I think that um, the hasty decisions that were made about putting, you know, the processes in place, and we're lucky that Zoom is an inclusive platform as is Teams, um, but there are many out there um, that aren't, and many companies are going to have to revisit some of the choices that have been made in haste. 
um, as we uh, move into, you know, the new world of post-COVID, let's hope it's in the not too distant future, where people are going to be strongly advocating for their right to or their preference to work from home. Um, and in many cases, I think we are going to see efficiencies, uh, but we are also going to see challenges as well, perhaps to do with isolation or lack of support. Um, and, you know, we could discuss some of those as well. Yeah, so perhaps we could just um, tease this out a bit, because if home working or some sort of blended home and uh, working is going to become the norm, we can just tease out what are some of the... Well, there's, we can clearly see what some of the advantages are, but there are also going to be disadvantages of this. Um, and perhaps we could just explore that a bit. And I, I, Shapiro, I think you mentioned earlier on uh, about um, doctors um, moving on online and saying there are advantages of that, but there are also disadvantages. So perhaps we could start off by exploring those disadvantages and then think more broadly about the, uh, the challenges that home working pose. Yeah, well, if you think about the disadvantages, um, one that is being very cross-cultural and across, you know, everyone's experience, no matter who you are, you've experienced this if you've had an online doctor's appointment, probably. And that is when you go to your GP practice and you come in and you say, oh, I'm Shibira, I'm here, uh, then, you know, the receptionist usually tells you, okay, the doctor's running 10 minutes late or something. Or if they don't tell you, you're still there, you can ask, right? You're not sitting there in the unknown. You're not in a black hole and but what's been happening with the zoom calls either primary care or secondary care if you've had a hospital appointment you still have your appointment on the day uh, but if your appointment was at 10 o'clock and no one calls you at 10 o'clock you have no idea when they're going to call you and there's no way of communicating and ascertaining so the sense of anxiety of being able to plan for your life the amount of people i've heard and there's a report that's been published by health watch england it was limited in that it was only 70 people and it wasn't as intersectional as it should be or it could be. Um, but I'm hearing cross-culturally that it's, it's a very similar things. So people would go to the bathroom because they've been waiting an hour and then they'd miss the doctor's appointment and then you don't have your doctor's appointment. It's gone. It's, it, they've moved on to the next person. But there's no communication and just good tech. What it would do is it would say, first thing in the morning, I'd get my text message or whatever it is that I've preferred. I've said my contact preferences and I'd get a message saying, you've got a doctor's appointment today. It's going to be about 10 o'clock and 15 minutes at least before my appointment would be like, you're the next person who's going to be seeing the doctor's going to call in 15 minutes. Okay. Thank you. Communicate with me. That's good tech. So we're doing lots of tech, but we're not always doing good tech and we need to start to articulate working with those underrepresented voices who are most impacted with what good tech looks like and have some rules that we say, if you're going to develop tech that you want to work with, you know, that you want me to use as a patient or as a student or as an employee, these are the principles. These, this is what good tech looks like. It needs to be intuitive. It needs to be, I, I don't need to read a manual to understand how this works. Um, as digital users, you know, lots of people are using things like Facebook or WhatsApp and some other, you know, mainstream. And there are, we learn behaviors. And so we've got some skills around digital. And what we need to use is piggyback on what already works, whether it's some of those mainstream platforms that we really know works or whatever it is. We need to build on um, and it needs to be more intuitive and built into, um, into what. So one of the disadvantages is then you just miss out appointments. You have you, the feeling of 
self-efficacy and control. We're supposed to be in control of our health. In order to overcome health inequalities and the digital divide, you have to feel like you're in control of your health and well-being. Otherwise, your confidence, your feeling of self-efficacy in your capabilities, knowledge, um, you know, just agency is diminished. And so we need to make sure that everything that we do is supporting that agency, particularly when people have much more pressure than they might already have. If people don't have that social support to be able to get online that they might have had before, then we need to make sure that we can get in there because they're the disadvantage of just even getting to your appointment. I suppose that also leads on to your point earlier on about co-design. And I guess we think about let's leave the tech to the techies, but actually we need... You should never do that. Exactly. Um, and um, I mean, I'm just wondering whether any of you had any experience of, of being mm. involved in, des in designing, co-design with technology. Yeah. Uh, look, I think all of us have, maybe. <laughs> Lauren, oh, have you co-designed? Uh, no, I have not co-designed uh, with technology specifically, but I completely agree uh, with the principles of co-design and collaboration. I have a bit of experience of that on, on the more sort of city, urban level rather than with technology specifically. Um, and I'd, I guess the one thing that I'd, I'd say on this uh, subject is just that users are incredible. Like somebody who says they don't think they know anything uh, about being the user of technology or the user of a city, uh, actually they know a tremendous amount and they can tell somebody who understands how to code or how to build technology. Uh, they, they can tell them exactly what they want it to do. And often that is, uh, that is what kind of uh, uh, brings the ideas to life and actually makes them relevant to like the human experience as opposed to this kind of abstract level of uh, this, is, this is what's technically possible. From a BuildingNet's point of view, uh, co-design is absolutely essential. And we've you know, talked about uh, the physical landscape and that definitely applies to the digital world as well. Um, there are excellent guidelines that are out there that if organizations follow, then those products are gonna be inclusive. I'll be able to use them as a blind person. If you've got a hearing impairment, cognitive, motor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what we actually find is that those products, if they're made inclusive, they're actually easier to use for every single user. So let's talk about mobile. You know, it, we're definitely living in a mobile first world. The daily traffic to any given website is well over 50% mobile. So, uh, you know, obviously designers are um, considering that. They're making their websites uh, responsive. They're, they're providing app alternatives as well, which are always a, a much cleaner and more distilled down experience from a user experience point of view there. You know, um, much less of a cognitive load. And for someone like myself, I would always go to an app before a website any day. But, you know, most of the people on this call today have probably used their phones one-handed already today because, you know, we use our mobile phones a lot and we, we, you know, don't often have two hands free or whatever. And as you're tapping away with your thumb on that screen, you have exactly the same requirements for those few minutes as somebody with a 24 seven uh, motor or dexterity impairment. And those guidelines will help you just as they will someone with that, that impairment. Ditto, you know, small sheet of shiny glass on a sunny day, the color contrast and font choices that you make will benefit everybody. Uh, same with a, you know, a bumpy bus or car journey or a noisy cafe. There are so many reasons, even from a kind of a cognitive impairment point of view, um, something like the Uber app needs to have extreme usability for people to be able to successfully order an uber after they've you know been out on the town and had a few <laughs> drinks etc <laughs> so 
There's loads and loads of parallels. And so accessibility, people have probably heard about that. And it was certainly mentioned a lot in the report, um, but mostly in terms of its broader use, which is access to technology and those other factors that we talked about at the beginning come into play there. Um, socioeconomic factors, access to broadband, that sort of thing in rural areas. So accessibility has a broader context, but certainly when it comes to disability, there are accessibility guidelines which are out there and people really do need to embrace to create products and services that are fit for purpose. You know, it should be table stakes in the 21st mobile first century um, that you have uh, an inclusive product. And so at AbilityNet, we, we really like the term inclusive design rather than accessibility per se, although, you know, it's the guidelines that you need to follow because accessibility um, in terms of disability or, you know, designers, coders, etc. when they've heard about that and those guidelines, they think, oh, it's just for disabled people. So we want to kind of switch that around and think yeah. of it as inclusive design. And then hopefully everybody will get on board. And co-design is absolutely at the heart of that. So we have a range of services, checking people's websites, doing user testing with disabled end users, etc. Because the people that are working on anything, whether it's a city or an app, uh, if they're as diverse as possible, then you're going to avoid some of the horrendous mistakes that we've seen when things have been developed by, for example, young white men in California. Yeah, absolutely. That is really skillfully uh, laid out, Robin. Um, and I think using inclusive design is um, optimal. Um, have you heard of the term uh, proportionate universalism? So it's like a big term, but really it comes from health inequalities and it comes from the MAMA review. And it's exactly what you just said. And the premise is that if you should um, design products that are for everyone, um, but you make sure that you design it to make sure it's sticky and it's relevant and it's accessible and it's inclusive with the people most at risk of you leaving them behind, which is inclusive design. And it's a principle of how all services. So when Lauren said, oh, you know, I've been doing design of public spaces, but that's not the same. It is exactly the same. Anything that requires the public, our local communities to engage with needs to use the same principles. And so actually using inclusive design, having a proportionate universal approach means that it's better for everybody. And that is what we should be gaining for. Not going, oh, no, we've got to do the stick box. You know, we need to make sure that people living with a disability can use this. No, no, no. Start with them and then keep broadening it out. Because if you actually get it right and you make it, you know, sensitive to neurodiversity, do you know that like, you actually support language barriers? So I have been for a long time saying, look, don't just go translate everything. Make it really easy to use because our banks aren't translating and we're using our banking apps. Uber's not translating. WhatsApp is not translating it. They're making it easy to use. They're making sure that everybody, because they want, you know, they see people as customers. So they want as many of us to access it. But public services are having like this small little group of people, usually, you know, young white men, sitting in an app cell and designing things for us and then wondering why we can't access it. Um, of course we can't access it. And so there's principles of inclusive design need to be. Um, but one thing I have found um, to share with you is there are lots of guidelines and I think that there's more support needed for these. Um, and there are lots of young people and they're bright young people and they really actually do want to get it right. That I will say. Um, and sometimes they just don't know how to go about it. And it feels like a bit of a, those of us who've been doing this think, well, how can you not know? Like I'm here, like there's that person over there. We're all here ready to help. 
but I think we need to collaborate. And that's why I wanted to start with sharing good practice because I'm hoping that's going to ignite and it's going to make it easier for people to know who they can collaborate with because the appetite is there. The appetite to co-design is there. I think some of um, our young people working in this tech space and older people working in the tech space have been so used to the, the culture of working in tech design is so different. Um, it's developed at a really fast rate, but using some very unique principles and agile working within that space that there's, it's very culturally attuned there and they don't know then how to invite us and how to work with us. It feels clunky to then invite other voices. Um, but I think through collaboration and supporting them with very pragmatic, tangible ways, in the way that you just described, Robin, actually, that was beautiful. Um, I think we're going to be able to do this. And I think if there's lots of us, if all of us from every hymn sheet, from every sector is talking, saying the same thing, aligning, sharing, I think we're going to be able to crack this nut. Wonderful. Well, if nothing else comes out of this, uh, this webinar than that point, then I think we've, we've done a great service. Um, just moving on now, we've had a question here from, uh, from Hannah Ditchfield, and she's asking uh, this. She says, I'm thinking about digital inequalities from the perspective of conducting research. How might digital exclusions impact how researchers can recruit participants and conduct research online? And she says, this is especially important to consider in sociological fields where understanding experience of marginalized communities is central. So it's a question, I guess, about, about bias and uh, amongst other things in research. So I'll open that up to our panelists to, to respond to that. Uh, I'd, I'd love to say something about that because uh, as somebody who works in the media, uh, I obviously do a, a lot of research. I also do a lot of uh, commissioning of writers. Um, I think fundamentally one of the challenges is if you want to include people who aren't traditionally looking in digital spaces uh, for information or opportunities, you really do have to go out and find them. It's a very, very active uh, thing that you have to do. Um, so I think one of the one of the most important, very simple things that, uh, that we can all do uh, is really actually define uh, who it is that we're looking for and then where they actually spend time. Uh, and I think it's so important. It's so impor important to think beyond like the big tech platforms, to think beyond the places, perhaps like uh, members of this panel, people watching today might spend a lot of time every day. Uh, the lived experience is incredibly different uh, for different types of people. So if you're looking for, if you're looking to include voices uh, that traditionally don't appear in research, that traditionally don't get interviewed for media, uh, I really think the challenge is the same and you really have to go out and find them. Uh, that's really, really challenging uh, during a pandemic. Uh, I've certainly found it challenging because you can't necessarily physically go out and find people, which can be the, the more effective way of, of getting those voices into what you do. But I'd say that um, a, a bit of design at the beginning, a bit of uh, conversations with people who are a bit better informed than you are about where uh, sort of underrepresented groups might be found and the challenges that they face in uh, having their voices heard and accessing information and opportunities. It really can make all the difference, just kind of stopping before you actually start uh, sourcing the people that you, that you want to speak to. Thank you. Yeah, can I, can I chip in just for a Please sec? Um, so the question is how might digital exclusion impact and then how can you recruit? So there's two different questions in there. Um, I think Lauren's done a good job already of answering the first part, so I won't reiterate that because I agree with everything she says. Um, so when I came into NHSX, um, 
in the middle of COVID, I was working on the COVID app that uh, was launched on Isle of Wight and then was supposed to be launched and now we're, they're rebuilding it. Um, and the first question I asked is, how have you uh, co-designed with underrepresented voices? We already had some data by the beginning of May that showed there was a disproportionate impact of COVID on uh, black and minority ethnic communities and in inner cities where in areas of deprivation, so poverty, uh, people living with a disability, older people, men, like we really started having that data. Um, so how are we involving then those voices um, in co-design? Uh, well, we didn't, we couldn't. The pace that they worked at, we worked too fast at pace. And, you know, there's positives and negatives to that, which I won't go into. But then it's about the user research. So, yes, you're right. We can't go to traditional places and do outreach, like going to libraries or mosques or churches or hairdressers and places like that that I would have traditionally gone to do outreach. But you can still do outreach because in our communities, everywhere in our communities, we have areas with social capital and with community leaders. So um, I've started doing outreach through NHSX. Um, I've stood up what we're calling the People's Network, and any of you guys can get participate in it. Um, and we're starting with an emphasis um, on black and minority ethnic communities, uh, not to exclude other protected characteristics, but as a starting point, and specifically because of turning the power dynamics and because of what's going on uh, in like systemic racism across the country. So it's very important to start that with those communities, but they're all intersectional. So we have someone who's a black woman who also is um, has partial sightedness. So it's you go through community leaders. And so we've got some community leaders and we're piloting it starting in, in East London and Birmingham, again, because they were disproportionate um, impact by COVID, also experienced increasing levels of digital exclusion and data poverty, which we really do need to talk about in digital exclusion. And we're reaching out through those communities. Um, and I can tell you since the beginning of June, we've had over 60 interviews, user research in depth with underrepresented voices, with people just this week, in five days, we've got 25 people who are taking part in user research who have no access to the internet. And we've reached those people. So it's about building on what already exists. Remember, that is like key, piggyback on what exists. And there are community leaders out there. And it's about, you know, learning from practice. And so next week, we're going to be doing another lot of um, user research that's about co-design. So you need to build on, connect with your voluntary sector organisations. Don't assume that voluntary sector is always reaching. Ask, ask for data, use data to drive your decision making. And then those um, organisations, those communities, those leaders who show evidence have been able to reach those underrepresented voices. Work with them and build on what they're already doing. Don't start from scratch and try to do your own thing. And then invite those voices in. Just Thank a quick final additional comment. Yeah, please do. Sorry. Um, obviously reaching out digitally to um, try and get data on the digital divide. It might not be your first choice, but if you are ever going to drive anything through that channel, make sure that you make you pick an inclusive platform for it. You know, if it's going to be a survey tool, you know, something like SurveyMonkey is inclusive. Um, whatever it is you're going to be using, make sure that you've checked it for accessibility. You know, if you're not sure, contact AbilityNet or a similar organization or just Google accessible online whatever survey solutions or something um because otherwise you go you're not going to get data back from you know the disabled community for example if that's what you're trying to include in your data set which i hope you are um you're going to be excluding that group and you're going to have skewed data thank you 
question here from Robert Carolina, who's at uh, uh, Royal Holloway. And uh, Robert asks, to what extent do you feel that the discussion of digital divide can address the challenges faced by vulnerable adults, such as early and mid-stage dementia patients, who are so often targets of financial fraud? And Robert goes on, as a society, we continually force the vulnerable into digital arena for access to services, while state institutions seem unable or unwilling to intervene to prevent widespread theft from these from the same populations. So question about vulnerability of digital and, and crime. Anyone like to pick that one up? It's a I, tough one. Uh, my initial response would be that I think um, always, I think we need to have um, a non-digital pathway that's as strong as a digital pathway. Um, and when designing services, the non-digital pathway shouldn't be like a second rate. It shouldn't be, oh, we can't include you. Um, we don't know how to involve service users like you, so therefore you use the non-digital. So it can't be that. It can't be that because I choose a non-digital path, that means it takes me longer to get an appointment than if Robin can choose the digital path and he gets GP appointment before me. So we need to make sure that there's parity um, between a digital and non-digital path. And then there needs to be choice. There's still, you know, um, I know we want to go, we thinking about the environment, we want to go paperless and all sorts of things. I think people's preferences and we need to move at the pace of people. We can't spear ahead because that's when we perpetuate inequalities. And so I guess to, to you know, a quick answer for this one, Robert, because it's so complex. I mean, we can just talk about that question all day and we don't have it, is that I think we need to be paying attention to make sure this parity of access and equity of digital and non-digital pathways and see what other layers we can put in to protect people. But I think we need to work with, again, it's co-design. We need to work with those uh, communities. I don't think we're working with those groups of people. We're not working with people caring for those groups of people to really truly understand how the system is being uh, fragmented and how it's been um, sabotaged for to you know financially sabotage people um, and so I think we need to better understand we need to look at the problem and we need to work alongside carers and those communities. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to pick up on that and make a, a general comment which is that I think we really suffer at the moment uh, all levels of society when it comes to digital issues like this because our government our politicians don't understand tech particularly well you know I've worked with some of the world's biggest tech companies for the last 10 years and there is just such a divide in how people understand uh, the applications and potential of technology um, and one of the things that I'd really like to see uh, is data protection at a much like a better level than GDPR which I think could do a lot to, um, to help with, with issues of fraud. We really need a whole new digital infrastructure here where individuals can be masters of their own data, where we actually have control over how companies access and use uh, our data and our personal information. Uh, and actually uh, within that kind of infrastructure, it opens the possibility for things like uh, e-voting, but also for things like protecting vulnerable adults, perhaps dementia patients, uh, because 
suddenly you actually have a system for that in society which is effective and which can actually compete with the likes of Facebook or, or, or sort of Gmail. Um, and we're just really lacking that at the moment. I think that the government or governments all over the world, this is not at all like uh, just the UK, um, have to take some responsibility here and, and catch up. And actually that becomes about co-design as well because it's about co-design between the big tech companies and the governments. Uh, but unfortunately, those relationships don't work particularly well at the moment. There's a, a lot of sort of conflicting interests there, but we do need to be aiming a lot higher I would like to briefly come in and um, mm. say, so I think it's a huge problem. And, um, you know, the, the traditional channels of the telephone, for example, are, you know, on a daily basis, we get calls to our landline that are 100% spam and 100% convincing. <laughs> and if you weren't savvy enough to know that it was spam, because Amazon actually never would call you on the phone ever, um, then you could get into trouble very, very quickly. So I, th I think it's definitely a public awareness stroke education um, challenge. And those, should, those messages that um, education process should happen through the more traditional non-digital channels as well um, to reach those, those individuals. Um, I'm also gonna put a, a word in for smart speakers, which I ha think has a very strong role to bridge the gap between um, non-digital and kind of all in internet surfing and all that sort of thing and we've seen brilliant collaborations recently between Amazon and the NHS for example or the RNIB um, whereby what would have otherwise needed to have third-party skills as they're called that's what you call apps on the Amazon Echo for example um, being individually invoked or enabled now it's first party so the you can just ask the a lady i'm not going to say her name there's one here <laughs> alexa anything at all about you know the, the the kind of information that you would access via the 111 number etc yeah. um or anything to do with eye health or how to get registered visually impaired or etc etc um you know there's the, that's the rnib kind of element to it there is just so much potential there for bringing those messages to individuals for whom they're potentially not even aware that there's a computer in this little disc uh it just they just ask it intuitive questions and also those uh smart speakers have obviously got huge potential for keeping people connected for you know um being able to keep uh your eye on people to make sure that they're doing okay um to fulfill a huge social role as well i do a daily podcast on the echo called Dot to Dot, and we're up to episode 1280 so, and we haven't even scratched the surface of what you can do with it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I could go on about <laughs> it. What did you say it was called, Robin? Dot to dot. <laughs> if people are interested. I use my son is on the spectrum and um, Alexa has been really, sorry, I said the word. Right. Um, it's been really helpful in helping him to think about his communication. So when he asks the question, um, because she's very sensitive to particular nuances um, and he's really improved. He's now 12 and he usually can get a response from her within the first or second time, whereas at the beginning it might have taken five times for him to reword his question so that he could be understood. And so it's really helping him develop his conversational skills and when he's asking a question and thinking about tone as well. I just throw that one in. They're only going to get smarter. So we absolutely shouldn't neglect that area of the technology. 
when we're talking about the digital divide. Now, obviously, you need to have yeah. internet access. Somebody can set it up for you. But after that, it's pretty self-contained. Um, yeah, we should factor that in. Yep, definitely. Good point. We're moving towards the, the end of the, of the webinar, but the time for a couple more questions. And here's a question, from, not, not from Alexa, but from uh, Becky Faith. Uh, and Becky has asked, uh, she says, hi, I'm carrying out research into digitization during COVID in London, New York, and Brighton. One key finding is that the cost of data and lack of access to free Wi-Fi, yep. as libraries, etc., have been closed, has been keeping people offline. Yep. As poverty is likely to increase post-COVID, what does the panel think a good strategy to address this issue might be? For example, free broadband for low-income communities, question mark. Let me open that up to comment. Absolutely. I'm so passionate about this, and this is why I dropped in uh, data poverty. It is a real issue. I don't think we truly understand. Um, I think, you know, having um, access to, we, we made like free rating on NHS websites during, you know, that's going to come to an end um, in October. I think there's two pieces of work. One, we need to share information with people, with communities about how to get the best broadband deals and get the best data deals. Um, so they're not buying SIM cards all the time while they get free data. So we, they save money. Uh, we need to think about communities who can't get Wi-Fi at home, either because they can't afford it or because they're in temporary housing. We have a huge number of young people and children, whether they're in asylum or just temporary housing. Um, a lot of those families do not have access to Wi-Fi because they don't have a permanent address. They can't buy Wi-Fi. You know, the contracts are for like a year or 18 months or 12, 24 months. That means there are a load of young people this year during COVID who weren't doing any online learning. Um, and then the the you know again the homeworking the cost is now on the employee to you know pay for the electricity and the um, Wi-Fi. Um, I do think I think as a first call one of the recommendations that actually I, I sent across is that anyone and I think this is just one um, anyone that is on housing benefit or council tax benefit we should have straight away spoken to those telecommunication companies to, and to Ofcom and made it that they had free access to Wi-Fi because we know that there are lots of those people who are on housing benefit have children. So we're talking about the working poor who are already poor before COVID, before they weren't allowed to go into work and they're mostly manual laborers. And we know there's a divide in terms of the type of work that we do. Um, and Lauren already alluded to it at the beginning. So just, you know, using standard measures so it's not trying to get people jumping through hoops. If you're already here, you should just automatically qualify. So we need to look at solutions that support that and we should bring the you know these private companies to account and it could be part of their csr um that they do this um and it can't be just for a couple of months you know it's about to stop in october people don't even know about it um but it can't just be for health we need to think about education because we're creating another educational divide that is caused by data poverty thank you anyone else like to come in on this one yeah, I'd love to say something. So I, I think it's really important that um, we start to talk about internet access uh, as basic infrastructure in society. It is like a utility at this point. Uh, it should be like water. It should be like electricity. Uh, but I think there's an important distinction to make here looking at the future of, of tech, uh, connectivity tech, which is uh, broadband and data are kind of two different things. And actually here in the UK, uh, our actual like cables for internet access 
access at home, uh, your kind of broadband, your 12 month contracts. Uh, it's really, really poor compared to the rest of the world. And it's never going to catch up. That's not going to be how more provision is actually rolled out over the next 10 years. Uh, what is coming at a, a fast rate, a much faster rate outside of the UK um, is 5G. And so I think the efforts actually need to be put less on trying to get people the really, really bad level of internet that particularly rural areas in this country have available to them. Uh, and instead actually turn to how we ensure that when 5G is being rolled out, uh, people have access to that technology because we really need to be able to level the playing field in terms of digital connectivity. Now, I built a career from my teenage bedroom using a very bad countryside uh, internet connection. And you know, I didn't even understand that there was a better version of that until I moved to a city for university. Um, and it's really bad in parts of the UK. I did a, a piece of research at the beginning of the year that looked at this issue in Scotland specifically. Uh, and outside of the major cities there, you are lucky to, to get one meg, uh, which is an incredibly, incredibly slow uh, internet speed. So yeah, I think it's just really important that, uh, that we think about what's actually coming in a practical sense and we don't end up as a, as a country, as a society, actually rolling out a huge plan to get everybody the provision of something that will actually be outdated by the time the plan is, is kind of comes to fruition. And the final point that I just want to make is, is about net neutrality. I think that it's very, very important that we don't let big technology companies uh, sort of swoop in as they have in other countries and actually provide the provision with 5G, uh, provide the provision with that basic level of connectivity because uh, the incentives there, the power, um, the, the level of like advertising that can be damaging to people all of those threats are very, very real. Uh, and this is why I really strongly believe that it is government uh, infrastructure, that the internet should be something that the government is uh, regulating and providing in, in one way or another. Robin, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, just a very specific point really on um, many, many households have uh, fibre to their uh, door or to their you know, streets, Virgin Media, for example, and that's brilliant internet access. You know, you can get really fast broadband, but they bundle the TV uh, channels with it. And certainly my kids don't watch live TV, broadcast TV. Uh, they absolutely consume, uh, you know, videos, et cetera, but they're all uh, on demand. So those, we're paying, I don't know, 30 quid a month for the TV channels that we don't use. And there's no option there to debundle those. So I think that would be a really useful policy because, okay, people who are um, really, you know, disadvantaged aren't necessarily going to be going for those, but it's still part and parcel of a backward looking uh, landscape when we should really be looking at being agile and forward facing and, uh, you know, responsive to what people's actual usage patterns are so that they can free up that money for other things you know, for UK PLC to get back on its feet. Thank you very much indeed. I'm, we're we're going to have to, to wind up the, the conversation now. Um, I'm going to ask all three panellists if you've got a, um, a final message you'd like to give to people. But before, before I ask you to do that, I'm just going to do a quick uh, plug, which is to say that like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing uh, difficult times during the pandemic. And if you've enjoyed today's event, and if you'd like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation. And you can do this online via our Just Giving page. 
uh, and we'll put the link up immediately after this webinar. And also just to say that um, please join us again next week on Wednesday the 12th of August at 11am for our webinar on youth and loneliness. If we tend to associate loneliness with older people, um, teenagers, young adults, just as likely to experience serious levels of loneliness and it's yet it's not really talked about or widely understood. So with a new team of guest panelists we're going to discuss practical advice for helping young people deal with loneliness and to adjust to new ways of learning and working virtually. So it links in with what we've been discussing today. But I'm just going to go ask now our, our panelists if they'd like to leave us with a final message. Who'd like to start? Robin, go for you. Go for it. There we are. Um, just a, a, a plea for all employers. Um, safe, long-term home working does not involve just giving people a laptop. Um, there's things that you can do in the short term to make working on a screen that is attached to the keyboard safer. Um, you know, the, your dining table isn't the right height, your dining chair isn't the right height. So there are things you can do in the short term with books and footstools and things like that. But longer term, you really need to get that monitor up at, to eye level, which means that you can't type on the keyboard. So you need an, a separate keyboard, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. There's loads of information about this on the AbilityNet website. But it's just, you know, a, a quick statement to say, guys, um, you've, you've set people up uh, for working at home you need to check now whether that's viable for the longer term. Well, that's a message to my heart as, as well as other people. So th thank you for that, Robin. And uh, maybe Shabira, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, for me, it's remembering that the digital divide is like a spectrum and people sit along that spectrum. So there's not one uh, solution. We need to tackle it looking at it from multiple perspectives and thinking about intersectionality. And so you've got people who have zero skills or zero confidence or zero capabilities or motivation to be on. And then you've got the very tech savvy and, you know, we're all somewhere on there. Um, and so if you approach it that way and remember that digital exclusion is another determinant of health inequalities and health inequalities impact on your whole life and impact on the economy. And it is good for our communities. It is good for us. If we reduce health inequalities, it impacts us, even if we're not experiencing directly health inequalities. Thank you. And Lauren, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, so I think uh, the point that I'd like to end on really is that, um, you know, for the past few months, we've all experienced remote work. It's something that I've been doing for a long time before Robin, obviously, uh, was talking about he him having done that as well. But I think it's really important to remember that remote work during a global pandemic is not necessarily representative of remote work in general. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge transition that the world is still doing to actually figure out uh, what works best, particularly in terms of communication. So uh, a lot of people have talked about Zoom fatigue over this period, uh, and that is not symptomatic of uh, working from anywhere or working from home, being sitting in front of a computer all the time. It's really symptomatic of a, a larger work culture shift that we all need to participate in and help shape, uh, which defines what should be an email, a phone call, a Slack message, a Zoom call. And I think that's being overlooked in a lot of the hype, particularly in my industry in the media, uh, about remote work. Uh, I'd like to leave you with the vision that work and life are going to become more integrated. Um, and what we really need to do going 
forward is be paying attention to some really important human issues like isolation and loneliness, like the separation of uh, personal and professional lives uh, and how we can make sure that uh, we have the space we need both mentally and physically uh, to actually sort of achieve our full potential, whether that's at work or, or in our wider lives. Thank you very much indeed. That tees up next week's discussion very nicely as well. Um, mindful of, of Zoom fatigue, we better come to an end. Um, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep In Touch page of the Cumberland Lodge website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And you can find out more about our work um, on our website, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Thank you so much for everyone who's joined us today. And thank you to our wonderful panelists, to Robin, Shabira and Lauren. And goodbye. Thank you.